Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is episode four of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Sébastien Couture, technology evangelist at Stratum, a blockchain company. Stratum is based here in Paris, building proof-of-process technology using blockchain. Sébastien also co-hosts a super successful podcast all about the blockchain space, which is called Epicenter. In this episode, you'll hear a bit about new and interesting use cases for blockchain and how Sébastien is evangelizing Stratum's blockchain technologies to their partners. We also talk about how the multicultural Stratum team works together, how the Epicenter podcast came to be, some of the new and exciting developments in the French tech ecosystem, and how blockchain technologies can and will play an increasingly important role in that process. So without further ado, here's episode four with Sébastien Couture. Okay, so my name is Sébastien Couture. I'm a Canadian. I live here in France. And uh, I've been in France for well, almost 10 years now. It'll be 10 years in September. And uh, so I'm working. I've got a couple of things I'm doing. Uh, one of which is I'm director of community relations at a startup based in Paris called Stratum. Uh, well, in a nutshell, Stratum is building blockchain infrastructure for, for enterprise. But in a, in a much broader sense, we're providing enterprise with new ways in which they can secure processes amongst each other. In, in today's world, you know, we have a very hyper-connected world where companies are interacting constantly like in real time. And the way that they're doing that today is mostly through third parties, right? So you have company A that's cooperating with company B, or maybe there's a consortium of companies. And the way that they're doing that is that they're working through intermediaries. They're working through joint ventures, or they're working through you know third-party, trusted third parties that allow for the flow of information to happen between them. And what happens is that it becomes complex to have traceability in the information that's becoming, that is transiting through through these processes. So what, what we're doing is we're using some interesting technologies, of which is blockchain technologies, and we're, we're using blockchains to secure processes between partners, subcontractors, contractors, regulators, in very complex business processes. So what that allows is you, you, can, you can build a process uh, where multiple participants are involved. So maybe you have uh, an industrial designer building a metro system for a large metropolitan area. There's n number of companies involved in this, in this six-year-long process, let's say. What they'll typically do is they'll create a joint venture, and that joint venture will be used as the company that's securing the, contr- the contract between all of them, but also where they'll install the... You know, the, joint, the joint venture is managing the project management software and all that for the any any type of documents or security certifications or whatever. The joint venture is holding those. The problem is that, as we've seen in numerous scandals that have surfaced in these last few years, is that that data can be falsified, forged, corrupted uh, to serve the interests of whatever party or perhaps the, the consortium. And um, the infrastructure that we're building would allow for that same sort of structure to exist, but in a way that there's not one central party holding the information and, and being the trusted third party. So what that means is you can have collaboration that is much more transparent, where there's traceability of every step in this predefined process, and where there's also auditability. So then the 
you know, a, a, an external auditing firm or a regulator can look at this and with cryptography, with the digital signatures and with this distributed network has the mathematical certainty that the data that is being provided in this process is in fact accurate and, uh, and they can rely on it. The, the integrity is preserved. So that's that's what we're doing here at Stratum, and so the company was founded in November of 2015, and we did a seed round uh, a few months later, 600k euros, and we're now in the process of closing a Series A, which will probably be announced by the time this comes up. So we're pretty excited about that. So you know, what we're doing here at Stratum. Cool. And how did you get from what you did before to today? What what as the, as the director of community relations, what were you doing before and how did that work translate into what you do now? Okay, well, I've got a pretty, I don't know, unique, I, I don't want to call it unique, but atypical. I've, I've been called atypical by my professors at, at you know, university previously. <laughs> Whereas uh, I've got a pretty technical background, like I've been, I was a developer like before, but I don't have formal training. Like I, I like a lot of people, I think. Uh, sort of self-taught, started developing when I was young, building websites and that kind of thing in my teens. And, uh, and I studied marketing. So I studied marketing and communications and then I did, a, I did a master's degree in marketing and e-commerce here in France. So I did part of my studies in Canada and then I, I, I immigrated to France about the time I was starting my master's degree. I've always kind of been in between the two, right? Between sort of the marketing side and the, and the technical side. So for, for a long time, I, my, my first jobs were working in e-commerce companies in the north of France, where I was living previously. And then I transitioned into doing, you know, I was doing development, web development, uh, application development, and then kind of transitioned into more on, more on the consumer experience side and then project management. And that's what I did for the better part of you know, seven or eight years. And so that was a, you know, an interesting experience because it, it allowed me to see sort of the, both sides of the pendulum, right? You, on one side, you have a marketing manager that, that has requirements. And on the other side, you, you've got these very interesting technologies. And, you know, what, what often happens in large enterprises is that, you know, new technologies get pushed by the innovation departments or the IT departments with no real sort of visibility on what people are actually going to do with these things and mm -hmm. how they're going to use them. And, and there's often a mismatch in the interests of the marketing side that wants to sell or you know, improve its customer experience or you know, improve retention. And then the, the, the IT side that just totally excited and geeking out on these new technologies. Now, do you, do you find that, just, just to interrupt for a second, do you yeah. find that that's different? Has your experience here in France been different from your experience in Canada in terms of user experience versus IT? I've been, most of my real professional career has been in France. I don't have like really, I don't really have a lot of experience in Canada except for a couple of you know, summer jobs and stuff. What I can say about France is that I, I think that a lot of the innovation and user experience comes from, obviously comes from the U.S. And it may, to an outsider, it may seem that a lot of startups and companies and right that, that are building new type of, types of experiences sometimes are a little late to the game but they catch up really fast here yeah like they once they get it like they get it and they they sometimes yeah. surpass what you may see in other places and, and there are many uh, examples of this one is so sort of the e-commerce space when 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 i started working here like 2007 2008 you know france was quite behind in terms of online experiences you know online banking e-commerce and basically everything that we just take for granted today at the, at the time i felt that you know, there was much to be done in terms of the potential, right? And but with regards to what was already being done in the U.S. and 
in other places. But then we just saw that things caught up really, really fast. Sometimes I think even surpassing MS. And that just goes to show that there's, there's a lot of talent here uh, on the design side, on the customer experience side, but also on the engineering side. Yeah, definitely. The engineering talents here are just great. Yeah, so from, from that, I, in 2013, I, I started becoming interested in, in this new thing that I heard about, late 2013, which mm-hmm. is Bitcoin. For, for the listeners who, who don't know what Bitcoin is, so Bitcoin is a, is a digital currency, and underlying Bitcoin is this technology called blockchain technology that everybody's talking about now. And at the time, I, 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 um, so I'm, I'm a pretty big podcast listener, I listen to a lot of podcasts. The natural thing that I did was start listening to podcasts about Bitcoin. And there was one sort of flagship podcast uh, that was really well produced called Let's Talk Bitcoin. And I started listening to it. And very soon after, uh, the host of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Adam B. Levine, put out this call. He wanted to expand his podcast into a network of shows. And he put out this call for pilot episodes. Like he made, created this contest. Okay, you guys, if you want to propose some podcasts for this new network, record a pilot and there'll be a contest. Our listeners will vote. Those who win or those who are more successful will become part of this new network. And so very early on, they had a Skype call with all the people who may be interested in participating. And on the Skype call, I met my now co-host and co-founder on the podcast that I've been doing for the last three years, which is called Epicenter. And so Epicenter is, is a weekly podcast that we release every Tuesday. We talk about Bitcoin, blockchain, distributed technologies, you know, all, all this new distributed technologies that are really shaping the way that our IT systems and the way that we think about governance and all that stuff. There's no shortage of guests. <laughs> In the beginning, the ecosystem was, was quite close-knit. Mm-hmm. You know, there was basically new everybody. It was the Bitcoin ecosystem and all the startups were working on that technology. But then as, technologies, as new technologies start to come into the ecosystem, so technologies like Ethereum and uh, this idea of private blockchains now, a lot of different protocols, and, right? There's just an explosion of, in the number of projects. So it's, it's, it's more a question of curating the right guests and the right projects you want to talk about. Because there have been a lot, there have been some scams as well, right? Because when there's money involved, yeah. uh, there, there's, there's always, uh, you know, the, the small percentage of that pool of projects that are going to either turn out to be unsuccessful or turn out to be not really well-intentioned, either knowingly or not. So yeah, we, we, we try to have only the projects that we feel have integrity, uh, actual vision, and um, I think we've been pretty quite successful at that so far. We've had a couple of misses, but uh, we try to, we try to you know, sweep those under the rug as much as we can. <laughs> the way that I see the ecosystem right now, the, the blockchain ecosystem, you know, broadly speaking, is that there's there's um, parts of the stack, right? You, you're talking about a technology stack to serve a specific need or use case, and, and there's there's parts of that stack are starting to come into into place, but there's still a lot of pieces missing. So I, I sort of compare it to you know if you look at web technologies, you want to build a an iPhone application today. I don't know. There's there's, there's yeah. different options that you have, and the entire tech stack is there, and you know from your you know the the frameworks are there from the IDE all the way down to the compiler, to the, everything is there. Same thing for e-commerce. Like you want to build an e-commerce website, you've got you know, Magento, PHP, you know, MySQL, running on Apache, you know, with your clustering, you could basically click and deploy that in a couple hours. That's not so much the case for blockchain technologies right now, right? We're starting to see what the use cases are gonna be. My opinion is that there's sort of two categories of use cases, one of which is duplicating what Bitcoin did with money is creating, distributing, and managing, and sort of storing digital assets. And the other type is process traceability, which is what we're doing here. So I think those are the two large categories with nuances in between. And um, I mean, yeah, but the, but the stacks are not there yet. The stacks are not quite fully mature, and I think it will take a while for that to, to, to happen. 
what we're doing here at Stratum is, you know, we have a research team that, that is doing a lot of research and, and, and looking into those different use cases and building those stacks. So building the stack for this type of document traceability use cases or building the stack for this type of supply chain traceability use case or building a stack for uh, securing trade data right, for financial markets or capital mm. markets. And, uh, and we're, we're taking in you know, everything that we know from the ecosystem and everything that we know about cryptography, distributed technologies, things like zero-knowledge proofs, which are really interesting <laughs> new types of cryptography and uh, uh, yeah, cryptography techniques, and trying to, to put those into pretty clear, well-formed stacks that we can use for the use, use cases. Right now, we're doing a lot of that is being done sort of manually, right? The deployment right. And, and testing and um, the, the connections with existing IT systems. On our product roadmap, we have all these tools. Productizing that, right? these manual processes. Right. So productizing the manual processes for deploying your blockchain network you know, in, a, in a private setting. So you know, in a consortium of companies. So let's say you have a, a consortium of, in, of insurance companies that are looking to, to digitize and standardize a common process amongst themselves. That's called a private network, right? A consortium of, 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 uh, of actors, and you, know, you want to be able to deploy that network pretty pretty seamlessly. Ideally, you know, taking all the CEOs and putting them around a table, or sorry, CTOs and uh, around a table, and having them just deploy the network in some sort of ceremony, uh, like you do with rootkey deployment. And then the governance aspect. So, how do you govern this network? How do you include new insurance companies that you want to join, or exclude some insurance co- some players that may not be playing by the rules? Or maybe you know for some reason they need to leave. So all those tools uh, are you know, make up the platform as a service SLA aspect of what we're building. Underneath all that is a stack of open source technologies that that we're starting to release piece by piece that make up the the really the tech stack that allows for in a consortium all these IT systems to connect and exchange information and exchange proofs of data between the players in the consortium. How do you find whether in a customer site or with a partner, how many people out, out there exist today that know how to do all this, that know how to put this together? Is that, is that in fact an issue? Is that something you do a lot of training to help companies? And I'm not saying it in a bad way because I've always worked with companies that were very much at the lead end, mm. a company that was filling gaps for Windows NT. At the beginning, and you know, Windows NT at the time had like a two percent market share. Right. And so, at the beginning, it was a pain in the ass. It was it was difficult because there weren't a whole lot of skills. You know, how do you address that issue? Do you find yourself doing a lot of training, both of your product, but also you know, explaining some of the basics of blockchain itself? Yeah, we do a lot of that evangelism, I guess. If you in want. the beginning, mm-hmm. yeah, there was blockchain <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but as, as as time goes on, we, we try to do a lot less of that, and yeah. we try to pass that torch on to our partners. Right, right. <laughs> so as, as a, an enterprise software company, we're, we're building a partner network, and that includes you know, companies like Deloitte and some other consulting firms here in France. And, and we're, we're, we're building up that partner network as much as we can, uh, and, and really working closely with them so that they can sell our vision better than we can. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's really encouraging and fascinating when you see, you know, when you're in a pitch with a, with a partner and this consultant is pitching your product better than you are. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. uh, you know you've done something right when, when that starts to happen. And then also training their IT teams. It's a long process and we're a pretty small team. We're still about 12 people. So, but yeah, so that, 
that evangelizing and more importantly is working with their clients to figure out industry use cases because we're, we're not mm-hmm. specialists of you know, insurance markets or uh, in energy, you know, although we try to have as much knowledge as possible. Like, we'll, we'll never be as good as a consultant like Accenture that has been working on this for the last 20 years. They know the customer inside and out. Right. They know the yeah. customer inside and out and they know what the needs are. They know what the right. problems are. They know all the players uh, in those ecosystems. And, and, you know, once they get the vision, once, once you've explained to them, okay, this is what fundamentally we can do with this technology, then they have that light bulb moment. They go, oh, okay, right. So all of these, you know, back and forth that we're doing now by paper mail, by registered mail to uh, cancel, like for insurance companies to cancel contracts with amongst each other, whatever, like we can do that instantly with the blockchain. And also the regulator will be able to have instant access to the information and we can work with the regulator to build this process in a way that is regulatory compliant from the beginning. Right. Okay, all right, we're going to go sell this thing. <laughs> right. right. And, and that's where you get the traction, right? So what we've been doing over the last year is working you know, on several POCs in different industries. We've identified the industries that we think are the most mature and now we're going full full throttle on those with our partners so that we can build the product. How, how have you found the process when you're looking for those internal evangelists, is it been sort of a hit or miss? Is it you just, is it a matter of you're talking to lots of people? Is it people here of you? How do you find, because that's, that's always the toughest thing. And, and before I forget too, you mentioned something that I think is really, really important that you see a divide with startups. You see startups that say, okay, we've looked at the market. Everybody says, ah, this is a problem. And then you have other startups that say, I am freaking smart as hell, and I'm going to tell the market what the problem is. And it's really, you know, it sounds like you guys are saying, okay, the market's saying, you like this technology, the market's saying, these are the problems, here's how we can help you. Yeah. I have worked with companies that try to force something down, and, it's, and it goes about as well as you might expect, yeah. and others that are saying, you know, I'm listening to what the customer says, or in, in, in your case, you've got a partner channel that's embedded with these companies and they're saying, okay, these are our big headaches here. Let's work together to solve an actual problem. It's coming from, I guess it was, it's coming from different places. So we definitely rode on the blockchain train for a while, like on that wave that started in late 2015 when The Economist released the, that, that article about how it's the trust machine. You know, we, we started the company right around, right around that. So we definitely benefited from that. Uh, benefited in a way that it got us a lot of uh, visibility, but also it, it also sort of distract. I think for a while, uh, you know, we had a lot of inbounds for, you know, let's you know, speak at this event or come pitch to us. And so it took us a while to start prioritizing and not wasting time on frivolous things. Customers that are leads that perhaps are not as mature as right, you may think they are. So I think we've, we've been pretty good at, prioritizing and, and um, yeah, not being distracted. Although it is challenging sometimes. <laughs> it's not always that easy. So it, you know, we, there's a lot of inbounds coming in that way, a lot of attention. And for the moment in France, we're, we're the only company that has raised as much funds as we have and that have, I think, quite objectively worked on as many POCs as we have. And now those POCs are being transformed into pilots. So uh, I don't want to call it first mover advantage, but combination of things, first mover, having a great team, you know, having having a, a CEO that is carrying the vision. There's a, a number of things that I think have brought us to the point where we're at today, where I think we're one of the sort of leading companies in the space in France for now. Maybe that will change, <laughs> who knows, but uh, 
But for now, that seems to be the case. And uh, to, to, to your point, what, what you were mentioning earlier about forcing some sort of a vision or a methodology onto, yeah. onto um, industry actors that obviously know the, what they're doing and, and are, are, are pretty adverse, I think, to having uh, you know, this team of you know, 30-somethings coming yeah. and say, this is how you can do something. I think the, the approach that we've had is not so much to tell them or to be quite directive about you know, how they're going to do things, but really to stay at a high level and carry the vision mm-hmm. for the future. And then when, when, when they understand the vision, right, the, the vision of trustworthy interactions between, between companies, between individuals, people on these networks that provide transparency, that provide also privacy, right? So they, it's, it's the best of both worlds, right? You have transparency in data, but you have privacy in, in, in your personal data. And also these other features like auditability and, and that sort of thing. When they get that vision, then they figure out for themselves how they're going to do it. Right? Yeah. And you know, our partners, our channel partners, they try to lead them into that direction. But if you can sell them on that vision and you can just show them the value that this has, you don't need to tell them how they're going to how they're right. going to use it. They figure it out for themselves. And, and that's where that's where the champions come. So that's where you you know at, at one company you have a champion that comes up and right. says, "Okay, now I'm going to take this and I'm going to lead I'm going to lead nice. this initiative within." within the company. How do you find the champion yeah. that, that in, in a lot of different areas, people, especially at an earlier cycle in a startup, they think that because they have a product, that the skies open up and throw them leaves, they throw them business, or because they work with an accelerator, oh my God, here's the, uh, the stuff that just thrown onto the left. And that's not the case at all. For, for finding an evangelist, it, it takes work, it's hard. Mm. I mean, how have you managed that process? How did, how did these people, did you go to them? Did they come to you? And then where yeah. do you go from there? We've felt out these, you know, these people, right? So we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have a lead with, with a company, an opportunity, and, 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 and we start working with them in some capacity or start doing a workshop. And we, we did a lot of that in the beginning, either by ourselves or with partners. You know, for maybe like an insurance company, for instance, and uh, as one example, and um, you know, in, in these initial discussions, you, you, you kind of see right who's you get that instant sort yeah. of connection with, and then it's a matter of just building. I think it's just human relationships. There's no secret sauce. There's no formula. Just like right. it's, it's a relationship, and it's it's providing them with with the tools that they need to lead this work of being the champion. So that means providing them with. The, the demos that they need and trusting them to do it, right? Or doing it with them, giving them the time also, giving them, providing them with your time and resources so that they can internally you know, sell this idea to the right people, to their superiors, to the, right. to the CIOs, to the, to the different industry line uh, managers. You know, we, we have a, so we have a Slack channel, our, our own internal Slack channel that we were using sort of for, you know, internal stuff, managing projects and stuff. I mean, for, after a while, we, we stopped using it for that. Like we were using other tools like Trello or whatever to, to manage projects. And we also had this community Slack that we would invite people in and we would invite, you know, like our, these champions or developers or anybody who, who was interested in being in this other Slack channel. And what we found is that in this sort of internal company Slack channel that we had, all we were doing were just posting, you know, articles and like talking about, you know, stuff in blockchain and just theorizing about how things were going to play, whatever, just having discussions about blockchain. And we said, well, let's just, why are we keeping that internally? Let's just take that and bring it into this other Slack and let's close this one. Let's not use this one for internal stuff anymore because we're not using it anyway. Let's just have that discussion with all these developers and, uh, you know, these 
champions and you know, or channel partners or whatever who are all in there anyway. And so they, they can engage with it too. And so we did that and um, and we were having discussions there with, with people that are in our ecosystem. We have nothing to hide there. And then we may have like a private channel or something so that we can just you know, talk internally. And, but the, the public channels are just, it's just like if people were here in the office, mm-hmm. like you create a community. And, yeah, we're creating a, yeah, it's like a little tight knit community of you know, our very close friends and, and allies. And we've got a couple of channels in there for, for channel partners, right? So we've got one for like, Deloitte or whatever other partners we have. And when they have questions or when the developers have questions, well, they have direct access to, to our CTO. Great. And they have yeah. direct access to me if they need, or they have direct access to the people on our, on our biz dev team. So that's been an interesting experiment. I don't know how that'll scale. <laughs> I think yeah. at some point we'll need some kind of more scalable solution. But yeah, it's building those relationships and inviting people for coffee. Just be genuine and honest. And- yeah. There's no formula, like, you're not going to learn this in your fancy business school. Yeah. It seems so obvious. It's obvious to say it. I mean, you, you, like, I don't think about it when I'm right, right. When, I'm, when I'm doing it, but right. um, I think I, when you see the counterexample. You yes. see the counterexample, and, and I mean, I have, I've worked with enough companies because usually at an early cycle, they don't have uh, commercial people because obviously we're all evil and terrible and, and are stupid, but... You know, I think it's a very common problem at an early at an early cycle. Uh, so you guys are actually, I'd say, to a degree, you're you're ahead of the cycle on that because you're already communicating. I think for a, a, a 10, 12 person company, it's probably more the exception uh, than the rule to to have. Yeah, we haven't really done any sort of traditional marketing so much. We, we didn't really have interest to do so in right. the last year because we were working very closely with partners and, and, um, and our initial customers. What we thought in the beginning would be sort of a CMO role turned into be this building these relationships right. role. But now, so on the, other, on the other hand, now we're starting to do this product marketing, right? We're starting to implement sort of you know, traditional, well, starting to, we're thinking about <laughs> <laughs> implementing like marketing and automation tools and this sort of thing because well, you know, we're, there's just so many leads coming in. Um, that uh, you know, we have to build some kind of process around right. how we manage those. But the, the challenge is, and I think this is probably a challenge. I'm probably stating something quite obvious: is how do you how do you work out the balance between you know using automation but still having sort of human relationships with people right. Right. in a way that scales. And I don't know if there's any real answer to that question. Either be one or the other, or a little bit of both. But once you start getting quite big, unless you want to hire like massive amounts of community relations people that are doing this very non-scalable work, you're sort of beholden to marketing automation tools in some form or fashion. On a sort of related note, so somebody, let's say somebody is outside of your immediate circle. How do people do that? And, and from your perspective too, do you get good ideas that way? Or is it, uh, or do you... Find the people that are, you know, your Deloitte's and whatnot in that community. Are they the ones giving you? How does that work for you guys? Do you have community people outside of your tight knit Slack channel? Do you have community people that come and say, "This is a really cool thing," or is it kind of not so much? Yeah, not so much yet. I mean, not not a lot of people, but you know, there are a few people that gravitate around Stratum that you know will, will come to us with ideas and you know, like I said, again, it's it's about staying focused. Yeah, and it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get distracted. So in that case, 
I, I, I sort of have a policy where I try to at least answer or be receptive to everything that, that comes in. And, and if, it's, if it's not interesting for me, maybe it is for someone else and, and then it's making those connections. Because if you just tell someone like, okay, this is not a good idea, or maybe this doesn't interest me, well, then you just lost that person. Uh, right. However, if you, even if you connect them with someone else with whom they may have some sort of synergy or someone else that may think this is valuable or who may find value in what they're proposing, then, you know, they're, they're leaving as a champion sort of right, right there because right. You, you, you gave them something. Now, how does the, the fact that you guys have this podcast that's... that's yeah, so Epicenter is totally separate from Stratum. But uh, it's very... They sort of fit. So what, what, I've, what I've gotten from Epicenter is a few things. So one is just direct connection with basically everybody in the blockchain space either directly or indirectly, you know, at like one level away with my co-hosts, like we have the ability to just reach out to anyone pretty, pretty easily. So that's been extremely valuable for the show because as, as we release more episodes that people know about us and in the beginning, I would say it was hard, but we, we had, we had to kind of sell it, right? We had to kind of convince people, yeah, come on the show or whatever. Like now we don't even have to beating them off with yeah. a stick. Oh, wait, no, we're, not, we're not beating them off with a stick, but like when we invite someone, they're like, yeah, sure. Like I'll yeah. on your show. So that's, that's been great. And also just learning about all this stuff. Like I, I would, I would, I would have never learned everything that I know about all these technologies and you know, this this ecosystem had had it not been for that. It's kind of forced me to you know, stay up to date because every week you're interviewing someone else and you you, know, you have to read up about the, what they're doing and read these white papers. And uh, you know, a lot a lot of times it goes above my head because I'm not an engineer. But uh, yeah, at least having a, a broad understanding of how these technologies work and how they're going to interact and you know, what what works, what doesn't work, what that has provided. I guess for Stratum is it's it's allowed Stratum to kind of have these connections with the ecosystem. You know, like recently we had a workshop here. There was a conference in Paris. You know, the, the day after the conference, we organized a workshop here in the office and we invited some of the top people in the in the blockchain ecosystem, you know, from all around the world. And having them here in the office, getting to learn about what we're doing and interacting with our team and, and learning from them. That has been really valuable, and those conversations have kept going. And uh, some of those people are now sort of working with us, sort of, you know, in, in some form or fashion. I think what if, if I were to ask you know, people here what they benefited from is is that connection with the community through the podcast. But they are two different, two, you know, two different companies with two different teams. And now you you've talked about the company and the people, the people here. It's, it, you've got people from all over the place. Uh, okay, so you've got uh, one, one of your developers is a Buddhist. Uh, Anton, who's from Russia, is like a really fun, you know, you've got a lot of different people yeah. uh, from different places, uh, like managing that. So, you know, the UN, we see the struggles of the UN, people coming together on the same message. Like, what are the, what's the most difficult thing about different cultures? Well, I, I want to start off by saying that so our CEO, uh, Richard Catano, has been instrumental in, in um, attracting these talents. He, he has a, uh, he's, he's a very open type of person with a very welcoming personality and people, people tend to want to gravitate around him. So I think that you know, the, the team that we're building is, is very much thanks to him, right? The, the quality of the people that we have here and the quality of not only of their technical talents, right, or their professional talents, but just the quality of the individual. You know, we had a discussion about this a couple of weeks ago, and there's also a few Americans here on the team, or North Americans. So I'm Canadian, uh, Rich is American, uh, our CTO is French-American, and then 
as you mentioned, we have so uh, a Russian blockchain engineer. His name is Anton, and and our senior research VP is is Indian, and he used to be a, a Buddhist monk, and you know he also worked in Wall Street, and and the business team is mostly French. So yeah, there's uh, it's. It's kind of yeah, it's kind of like the UN, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's a lot of French and Americans, but then then some some other nationalities that come into the mix, and and you know, we had this discussion recently in a team meeting: is how do we start to think about the, the culture? I and mean, we we kind of know what it is, but how do we structure that in a way that we can pass that on to new hires, or you know, when new hires come on, right? How do we present this to them? And we looked at it this way: so if if you look at American. Is those are like the American model and the French model, and and the American model is you know it's sort of bottom up, and the French model is sort of top down. You know we 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 have to being in France, we we have to be in compliance with like French regulation, French law, which is pretty conservative, and and, and I don't want to say it brings constraints, but it provides a structure that you kind of have to be in, right? You, you, you kind of have to abide by the structure. And if you don't, well, you fall out. You're not playing the game the right way. So we have to do this, but we also have to give people the freedom. And, yeah, we have to give people the, the, the freedom to come to work when it, when it suits them, have a sort of work-life balance that works for them. And also in communication styles, right? I've noticed that so having been in France for the last 10 years, I've assimilated, I guess, with the French way of doing things. And we've seen some instances of, you know, the, 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 the American uh, way of communicating and working sort of come into conflict with the French way of communicating and working. And, you know, these are sort of the growing pains of starting a new company with this diverse set of individuals. But, but it's been a, an interesting learning experience. And at least to, to, to be able to sit down and look at these two different approaches and say, okay, this is how they're different. We know they're different. How do we find some kind of a middle ground? I think as a team, we're kind of working through that right. constantly. And uh, and yeah, I want to, again, like say that Richard has been really great at identifying this as a thing and then trying to give us a framework in which we can all, you know, we can all work. Because for the most part, we're all here in the office, but now we're starting to have people. Uh, just recently, we hired someone who, who is in San Francisco. Okay, so now how's that going to work? Because he's nine hours away. He doesn't mind waking up in the middle of the night to work, right? Uh, he gets up pretty early out here. There's some very valuable and interesting parts of the French culture that you know we can we can pull from, and so we're going to get the best of that, and then we're going to get the best of the American model, and we're going to try to come up with some framework where everybody uh, can you know, work together and, and collaborate in a frictionless way. Uh, Richard has this way of of putting it, which is. Now, he's very good at, at looking at the team and, and seeing when when things are going smoothly and when when there's that you know, that process you know that creative process that's just flowing and he's also very good at seeing when it's not happening and and the way that he puts it is I see a knot I cut through it right? yeah. and, uh, and I think that's what uh, what he's been really 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 good at you know, one of, one of the many things because he's, he's, he's good at a lot of things. But one of them, with regards to this cultural aspect, is seeing when things are you know, more when things are not smooth and seamless and, and just sort of flowing and going in there and cutting in it and finding some sort of a compromise or middle ground or ways in which people can interact better. Which actually brings me to another point. You're one of the co-founders, as is Richard. What do you want or what do you look for in in somebody that you're going to go to work with? 
because it sounds like you guys sort of know, you know, you feel like you're good at this and you look at, at, at Richard and say, Richard's really, he does a great job with this. What is important from, for your, from your perspective in a co-founder? Well, I think someone who's, um, I, I think it's important for us before we look at sort of technical ability is, is, is to make sure that there's a match with the team. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not really directly involved in the hiring process. I mean, sort of, I, I'm not leading the hiring process in a lot of ways, but a lot of the people that so far have come on the team have been people that we know, right? People that gravitate around us and you know, either friends of ours or people that we've worked with in the past or people that have come to us, but there has been this time that we've taken to get to know them. And, you know, they come by the office a few times. We've had dinner with them. We had lunch with them, whatever, right? So there's this getting to know each other period before we even right. start talking about, you know, what role... Right. And that sort of happened naturally. Uh, now we're in the we're in the process of like hiring a talent manager because after this funding round, we're going to be bringing on a lot of people. And so with our with our CEO Nicolas Julia, we're he's he's leading that and and having a, a, a talent manager come on the team to hopefully take some of this. It's not so much a process, but taking this approach that we've had and transitioning it into something that scaled a bit more. But for example, you and Richard and, and uh, I don't know if there are other co-founders. Yeah, Stefan Florquin. Stefan. So you guys, yeah. you had known each other for a while. Like, how did you decide, okay, startups are really hard. They're difficult. They're stressful. I want to work with these people at that level, at the, at the, the founder level. What do you think? What, what should people look for? What's worked for you? And what, what uh, you know, what are things people should step back and say, you know, this works, this doesn't? I'm not really sure I handle that. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I, I, when, when, we, when we hire people, I'm not like fully part of the hiring process. So like, you know, I'll, I'll meet people like and, and get the feel for those people. And you know, if, if I, you know, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll then talk about it. It's okay, this is a good match for the team or whatever. Right. Do, do, do we do we think that do we like this person? Do we right. want them to come on? And then right. once we've established that we do, then we move on to talking about other things. Right? Like what could this person do? What role do they have? Through through the the, the podcast and the and the community, I uh, you know, we've been able to bring people around Stratum that we're now looking at and considering hiring. Right. right? So first we kind of bring them in and like you know, have them be gravitating around the company in a way that. We're just, you know, we're just sort of friends with, right. and then once, once we sort of know, you know, like, does this person even want to be hired by us? Right. right. Then, then we, um, at that point, then we can start thinking about proposing something to that person. The other thing is, is that our investor, our first investor, Otim Venture has been really good at cutting the fat when it comes to hiring. Hmm. So we've interviewed people. So recently we, we hired a new person to come onto the business development team. And this was a process where we had interviewed people and there were other candidates that were sort of friends of friends or you know, people that gravitated around the company. And we, we, had, we had interviewed this one person and all of us thought, we, you know, this is a good guy, you know, I think there could be a match and we were all pretty positive about it. But then the investors interviewed him and then they came back with like, uh, no, <laughs> like, you're not hiring this person for a reason A, B, C, and D and that we had not seen at all. And... They've been they've been really good at that at take, really taking a step back where we're all sort of nice and looking at the person the person's personality and but 
not seeing certain things that they have been just they have seen from from the get go and have been able to thankfully uh, help us not hire those people. Yeah, that's good. That's good if you can find someone that's got a different. They can look at it from a different angle. You know, because some just like say, okay, I'm grinding a chunk of your business. Please don't ever call me again. Yeah, no, our investor has been very hands-on where it counts. Hiring, structuring the company, helping us uh, come to this realization that we need to focus on key industries, right, to, to build product market fit. They've been really good at that. But not, not you know, they trust us on the vision, they right. trust us on the product, and they, they, they're very much hands-on mm-hmm. on that part. wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. Support us on Patreon. And join us next time on Radical Departures.